Hello and welcome back to Benaiah, Mighty Man of God by P. H. Thompson, an audiobook. This is chapter 34. The third captain of the army for the third month was Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, who was chief. In his division were twenty-four thousand. This was the Benaiah who was mighty among the thirty, and was over the thirty. In his division was Amizabad his son. First Chronicles 27, 5-6 Benaiah's current mission was not as dangerous as some he'd been tasked with, but it was no less important. His daughter's betrothed, Jair, sat across from him at their dining table, squirming as he poked at his food. Although he'd consented to the marriage of his youngest daughter, Sila, to Jair, the son of one of his close friends, Benaiah felt he had to establish his protectiveness of her. So over their bowls of venison stew, he occasionally eyed his future son-in-law with probing looks. Shall I tell you about the Moabite aerials I fought single-handedly? Benaiah asked, breaking the uncomfortable silence. He never boasted about his military accomplishments. They were well-established facts, as was his reputation as one of David's mighty men and his personal bodyguard. Sila rolled her eyes. That's not necessary, Abba. Everyone already knows. Benaiah would not be deterred. Jair, did Sila tell you that her brother Amizabad is under my command? And he is with my division of 24,000 soldiers? Yes, I'd heard that, sir. Jair's Adam's apple bobbed as he swallowed hard. You must be very proud. His voice rose an octave at the last word. Benaiah crossed his arms across his muscular chest. It wouldn't hurt for the boy to know that his future wife's father and mother were both able military men. Mariah huffed and rose from the table. Dear one, she said with a false smile, would you please come with me? I'm not finished eating. Benaiah dipped his spelt bread into the stew. Mariah stretched out her hand toward him. I have something important to show you. Her look gave him little choice but to follow her. He placed the bread back on the plate. Sila stifled a laugh behind her hand, no doubt amused that her father was on the receiving end of discipline. As soon as they reached the rooftop, out of earshot of the rest of the family, Mariah turned to him and scowled. Why are you so hard on poor Jair? He has nothing to prove to us. You shouldn't try to intimidate him so. I wasn't trying to intimidate him, Benaiah huffed. Okay, well, maybe a little bit. But I didn't say anything that wasn't true. Why did he feel so defensive with this petite woman? Making him call you sir is ridiculous. You are not his commanding officer. As your son, he should be calling you Abba. Benaiah recalled his own experiences with Mariah's father, Terhana, and his struggles with the concept of adopting a second Abba. But she's my baby, our last child to get married. I just want to make sure he'll treat her right. Mariah stepped into his arms and he wrapped them tightly around his wife of many years. Her hair had grown more grey than black now, and lines etched her face, but her eyes still sparkled with the fire of the beautiful young woman he married. Oh, my love, I know it's hard to let go. Soon our house will be empty of our own children, but we'll get to see our grandchildren daily, and we have each other. Benaiah kissed the top of Mariah's head, then looked down into her eyes. Were we ever that young and awkward? Mariah laughed. I'm sure we were. You must remember what it felt like to be young and in love. Benaiah pulled back from her. That's exactly what I'm trying not to think of. I know what thoughts men have of women. Mariah tipped her head to one side. You need to make an effort at being more welcoming and less threatening, so they'll come around after they're married. I'll want to see all of my grandchildren. Benaiah straightened. He did enjoy being a grandfather. 
I'll try to do better. Mariah kissed him. He followed her back down the stone steps. Zila and Jair glanced up nervously when they returned. Benaya said nothing as he resumed his meal. He broke off another hunk of spelt bread from the loaf. Noticing that Jair had cleaned his plate, Benaya handed him the piece. Thank you, sir. Call me Abba. Benaya said it more harshly than he intended, making it sound more like a command than a request, so he softened his tone. After all, you're my son now. Jair's mouth dropped open. Yes, sir. I mean, yes, Abba. This afternoon, if you'd like, I'll show you and Sila around the House of the Mighty Men and some parts of the palace. Jair glanced between his betrothed and Benaya, as if unsure whether this abrupt change of character was some kind of test or a new reality. I'd like that, Abba, he finally squeaked out. Benaya grumbled a response as he pushed a piece of bread into his mouth. Dressed in his peacetime tunic, Benaya stood on, in a corner of the palace rooftop. David had called a meeting with the captains of his army and General Joab. They had assembled in the outdoor pavilion, which was cooler than inside the palace due to the autumn breezes. Benaya wondered what kind of military plans David would discuss with these men today. To his surprise, Benaya overheard the king say, I want you to conduct a census of Israel and Judah. Benaya heard a grunt of protest from Joab and stepped closer to the tent. Go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, making note of those men over the age of 20. I specifically want to know how many fighting men I have. What could David's motive be for such an act? Was he planning to raise taxes, draft more soldiers, plan an offensive to take more land than Yahweh had already granted them? Joab said, May the Lord add a hundred times more people than there are, and may it happen in your day. It was not like the general to flatter. But why do you want to do this? What purpose could it possibly serve? His tone was conciliatory, almost fawning. Joab was loyal to David, but he never fawned. Benaiah awaited the king's answer to the question he himself wondered. I do not need to explain myself to you, nephew, David growled. I want to know what resources I have in my kingdom. Since we are not currently at war, the soldiers have time to conduct this worthy mission. I want it commenced immediately. I anticipate the assignment taking about three quarters of a year to complete. I'll leave it up to you to divide up the task. You are dismissed. After the others departed, Benaya assigned another soldier to his place, left the rooftop, and went to seek out Abiathar the priest. I seem to recall something in the Law of Moses about the correct way to take a census, he said, wondering if his childhood training might prove useful after all. The priest nodded slowly. There are instructions in the law about how a census should be conducted, he agreed. Abiathar dug through the wall of scrolls, reverently pulled one out and spread it across the table. Bending over it, he read, Every time the Israelites are counted, each man over twenty must make a payment for himself to the Lord. This must be done every time so that there will be no plague among the people. All men must make the same offering of half a shekel each as a payment for his life to the Lord. The rich must not give more, the poor must not give less. The king has just ordered a census to be taken. He said nothing of a ransom offering. Benaiah shuddered at the thought of the Lord sending a plague. The priest straightened. I will discuss this with Zadok. Together we will decide how to handle this. Benaiah chafed like a bridled horse. And what shall I tell the king? Abiathar patted his shoulder. 
You needn't concern yourself with religious matters, my son. In spite of your famous father, we priests are able to advise the king. What an odd comment. Did he think Benaiah was overstepping his role as David's bodyguard? Was Abiathar jealous of his father, Jehoiada? Benaiah would never, under never understand the aspirations of men in power. Almost ten months after David called his meeting with his captains, they again assembled on the roof of the palace. Benaiah lingered in a shaded corner, taking a respite from the summer heat while he could. Do you think the king will question our numbers? Abishai whispered to Joab. The general scoffed. I see no reason to add the Levites or the Benjamites into the total. The Levites are not eligible for military service, and the temple is in Gibeon with the tribe of Benjamin. And you will explain this to King David? Abishai asked. Only if he asks which I doubt he will. The two men fell silent as they joined the other captains in the pavilion, clearly unaware that Benaiah had overheard their conversation. While Joab's reasoning had merit, Benaiah suspected the real reason for the general's half-hearted obedience was his disdain towards David's order. Inside the tent, Joab sat at, on the king's right side, Abishai on his left. Benaiah stood directly behind David, not wanting to miss a moment nor a word of this conversation. We have done as you asked, my lord, Abishai announced with a mix of pride and dread. Very good. And what are your findings? In total, sire, Israel has 800,000 valiant men over the age of 20 able to fight in the army, and 500,000 in Judah. David smiled, clear, clearly pleased that his men had followed his orders and returned with encouraging numbers. He dismissed the generals. After they left, he walked to the edge of the roof and looked out over the city he loved. I fear I have behaved foolishly, Benaiah, the king said with a sigh. My lord, I shouldn't have conducted that census. I did it for the sake of my pride, so I could see what I have accomplished in the years since I began to reign. As if any of this, he waved a hand around him, was the result of my efforts. Benaiah had wondered what his motive had been. The lord saw me when I was merely a shepherd boy and elevated me to this high position, he has blessed me beyond measure and given us rest from all our enemies. David clenched his teeth and shook his head in disgust at his actions. But I just had to know how many troops I had at my disposal, as if the Lord wasn't the one responsible for our victories. I speak of trusting the Lord, but ordering a census proves that I trust more in the arm of man. He buried his forehead in his hands. Benaiah, I have sinned yet again. Perhaps the Lord will forgive you if you ask, Benaiah said hopefully. He's done it before. David attempted a weak smile. I hope you're right, my friend. Benaiah hoped so as well. Soon after Benaiah took his position in the common room, a messenger announced the arrival of the prophet Gad. Benaiah had first seen the now elderly man back when David was on the run from Saul, and he often advised David on spiritual matters over the years. The prophet approached David's throne with confidence. The look of resignation in David's expression indicated that he knew the news would not be good. Benaiah wondered if this prophet would tell David a story, as Nathan had, to illustrate the king's condemnation. But Gad didn't waste any time explaining the problem. Thus says the Lord. His deep voice echoed throughout the room, causing a hush. David threw himself on the floor before the prophet, ready to accept his punishment. Thus says the Lord. There are three ways you can be punished. Choose one. Benaiah gulped. 
Would it be worse to choose one's own punishment than to merely take whatever the Lord decided to send? Will you choose seven years of famine for you and your country? Or will you be chased by your enemies for three months until they defeat you? Or will there be three days of plague in your land? Famine, enemies, or plague, the usual punishments for disobedience since their nation began. But how to choose? Any one of them would result in much death. What answer should I take back to him who sent me? Gad asked dispassionately. All eyes focused on David, who remained on his face for some time. Finally, he raised himself slowly off the floor. This is a terrible choice to make, but it would be better to be punished by the Lord than anyone else, because he is merciful. So David chose either famine or plague. After all those years in the wilderness running from Saul, and more recently on the run from his son Absalom, David must have been overwhelmingly distressed at the thought of fleeing from his enemies again, and this time falling by the sword. Benaiah wondered if there was some measure of selfishness in David's choice. Perhaps this old warrior king preferred the idea of dying in his bed. But then Benaiah chastised himself for being too harsh in his thoughts toward his king. David had learned how great the Lord's mercies were when he forgave his grievous sins. Benaiah had experienced the mercies of God as well. Yes, David had chosen wisely. As Benaiah approached his home, the sound of wailing came from behind nearly every door. How weary he had grown of death. How many would die this night as a result of David's actions. He took a deep breath before opening his own door. What would he find waiting for him inside? As he entered the courtyard, Moriah ran to him, deep sorrow in her eyes. There's a plague upon Israel, Benaiah told her, sent from the Lord. His wife's hand flew to her mouth. Benaiah embraced her and stroked her hair. How are the children? He choked out, dreading the answer. Maytal and Sila are fine, as far as I know, as are their families. Benaiah released a pent-up breath. But I haven't heard about Amizabad or Jehoiada's families yet, she added, distress in her features. I saw Amizabad today, training his soldiers in the field. He's well, for now. Oh, Benaiah, I don't know what I'll do if we lose someone in our family. Her eyes widened, or if I lose you, she wept into his shoulder. Benaiah held her, unable to find words to reassure her. There were none. His children were well today, but this plague would last three days. He had no idea how it would end, or who would remain standing when it was over. Why is this happening? Mariah asked, lifting her face to him. The Lord is punishing the people because of David's sin in numbering the people with a census. Mariah blanched. Benaiah led her to a bench. After settling her onto it, he took her small hands in his. How do you know this? I was there when the prophet Gad confronted David. Benaiah had witnessed God's supernatural power over events in David's life many times, always in his favor. Yet he knew this time God's punishment would happen just as the prophet said. There would be no reprieve. Like the judgments on ancient Egypt in the day of Moses, God was revealing his mighty arm. He would do as he wished in the affairs of men. He had discerned what was in David's heart, what motivated him to do the order the census. Why must the people suffer for the king's folly? It's not fair. Moriah had voiced his own tortured thoughts. I don't know, my love. If the king was motivated by pride in the military power of his people, 
Perhaps the Lord is taking away from our number to show him that he alone is the cause of blessing or cursing, mercy or judgment. But what's so wrong about a census? Mariah asked, her face etched with confusion. Often the sins we think are small are offensive to God because he knows our motives. Benaiah's conscience smote him, yet again he had failed to properly counsel the king. Immediately after hearing David give the command, he had inquired about the regulations for taking a census, but he didn't tell David. He'd left it in the hands of the priests, whom he assumed would do as they promised. He hadn't even followed up to make sure they told the king. And now a plague was upon the nation. How many of his countrymen would die? How many in his own family? He had failed to protect them yet again. When would he ever learn? But if he repents, won't God forgive him like before? Benaiah stroked her hair, comforting himself in the process. He has repented. I heard him confess last night before he knew the prophet would come to him. But isn't that enough? Perhaps, even when we are repentant, God forgives us, yet the consequences still come. David was forgiven for his sins against Bathsheba and Uriah, yet the child still died. Thoughts of his little brother rushed in. Benaiah had regretted the way he mistreated Amizabad, but God still took him. Who can understand the judgments of God? If David offers a sacrifice for willful sin, do you think God will relent? Benaiah thought about that. The law commands a sacrifice before a census, not after. And when the prophet pronounced the judgment, it didn't come with options to avoid it. Moriah wept afresh. Will every family lose someone, like in the plague in Egypt? Benaiah hadn't considered such a scenario. I don't know, my love. I don't know. In spite of the death all around him and his concerns for the safety of his own family, Benaiah returned to the palace the next morning and resumed his position at David's side. He couldn't stop the judgment of God any more than David could. Yet all day he feared that a messenger would arrive at any moment with terrible news about his loved ones. Reports arrived throughout the day of thousands of dead throughout all Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. The greatest number of deaths seemed to be here in Jerusalem, the city that bore Yahweh's name. How were his relatives in southern Judah? His brother Shalom and his family, his sisters Rizpah, Yael, and Yamima and their families, his parents, Mariah's family. For three long, dreadful days, all business was suspended. The whole country was either trying to flee from the plague in a panic or caring for the dead and dying. David and all the elders of Israel wore the sackcloth of mourning from sunrise to sunset. At the end of the first two days, Benaiah went home to his family, relieved that they had not succumbed to the plague, and wondered why his family had been spared. On the evening of the third day, Benaiah followed David to the rooftop. Even from this height, the cries of mourning could be heard in the streets below. Heartache clouded David's eyes as he looked out over the balcony. Do you see that? David pointed to the eastern sky. Benaiah followed his gaze. Dark clouds clearly formed in the shape of a man with his sword drawn and outstretched over Jerusalem, the city David loved. The king fell to his face. I'm the one who sinned, he cried out. These people only did what I told them. They followed me like sheep. They did nothing wrong. Please let your punishment fall on me and my family instead. 
Although he was angry at David that this punishment had come upon them, Benaiah couldn't imagine, if he were in the king's position, wishing curses on his own family in the place of others. David had already seen much suffering in his family as a result of his actions, and now he was willing to take on even more to spare his people. He was truly a shepherd of his people, concerned for their welfare over his own. In their ceremonial sacrifices, the life of an innocent animal took the place of a guilty person. But David, the guilty man, offered himself in place of his innocent sheep. How different was this king now than he was that night on the roof all those years ago when he abused his power to take another man's wife. The consequences of that one sin had truly humbled David. The prophet Gad came up behind them on the roof. When David raised his eyes, Gad proclaimed, The Lord has relented of the disaster and has restrained the hand of the destroying angel. David looked back into the sky and saw the sword extended in the hand of the angel had been withdrawn. He exhaled with relief. Now go and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, Gad said. How odd that the Lord would direct David to a place of worship other than the tabernacle in Gibeon, a short walk from Jerusalem. But the king did not question the prophet's command. He hurried to observe the word of the Lord, perhaps thinking to spare even one more person if he obeyed quickly. Benaiah, Zadok, the priest, and several guards followed David as he climbed into his covered chariot and traveled in the direction of the vision he had seen in the sky over Jerusalem. Benaiah was glad Zadok had come rather than Abiathar, the other high priest. He was still angry at him for not informing David about the proper way to perform a census, mostly out of spite against Benaiah. As the royal chariot passed by, the citizens of Jerusalem exclaimed, The king has come down to see our suffering. David turned away in anguish. Many did not know he was the cause of the plague. When they learned of it, they may well curse him instead. When the chariot neared Mount Moriah, Benaiah asked a man walking with his son for directions to the home of Ornan the Jebusite. When they arrived, an old man looked up from his threshing, clearly startled to see the king and his servants on his property. David exited the chariot and walked up to the man, who bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Are you Ornan the Jebusite? David asked. He raised his head slightly and nodded, then asked, why has my lord the king come to me? Ornan's voice trembled. The man must have feared for his life. I came to buy the threshing floor from you. Then I can build an altar to the lord so this plague will stop. Ornan lifted his head, relief and surprise in his eyes. My lord and king, you may take anything you want for a sacrifice. He motioned to a yoke of oxen nearby. Here are oxen you can use as a burnt offering and the threshing boards and yokes can be used for wood. I gladly give all these things to you. Then, with a bow, he added, May the Lord your God be pleased with you and your offering. David helped Ornan to his feet. Your generosity is appreciated. However, I will buy these things from you for full price, for I will not take what belongs to someone else and give it to the Lord, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord, with that which cost me nothing. David ordered one of his servants to bring money, and then he counted out a generous sum of silver and paid Ornan. Brushing away the help offered by his servants, 
David set about building the altar himself. When Benaiah joined him, intending to carry some of the rocks to the raised section of earth, David touched his forearm. No, my friend, I must do this myself. As Benaiah and the other guards watched, the king placed each stone, one by one, on the growing altar. When it was done, David offered sin offerings and peace offerings through the priest, Zadok, acknowledging God's righteous judgment and mercy. When the ox had been laid on the altar, David fell to his knees and cried out, O gracious and merciful Lord, you do as you please in the affairs of men, for you are sovereign. You take down one king and raise up another. All blessings come from your hand alone. You have no need of armies, as you are able to save apart from them. Every one of our victories is yours. Our strength is not in our numbers, but in the sure mercies of God. You reveal your arm, and the nations tremble. David beat his breast. I have done wickedly. My pride motivated me to number the people. Because you hate haughty thoughts, you abased me. Now I see myself as I truly am in your sight, and I repent of the evil I have done. Now, Lord, be pleased to accept this sacrifice. I acknowledge my guilt before you and plead for peace between us. Please reconcile me to yourself, O Lord my God. Look upon your people, whom you have chosen, with favor. David rose and faced Zadok, proceed with lighting the burnt offering. As Zadok prepared to strike the flint to burn the sacrifice, fire fell from heaven directly onto the altar, consuming the ox. The guards around Benaiah fell backward. Some cried out in fear. David fell on his face to the dry ground. Benaiah stared in wonder as the flames from heaven engulfed the sacrifice. He felt the heat as the fire completely consumed the animal in a matter of moments. The Lord had answered David's prayer and accepted his sacrifice. If the plague had been a supernatural occurrence, this was far more so. God's judgments were just, but even greater was his mercy toward his people. God's anger had been spent. The avenging angel had sheathed its sword near Mount Moriah, the same place where Abraham's hand was stayed from killing Isaac so long ago. It was over. There would be no more deaths from this plague. God was faithful. David had been humbled by this event, perhaps even more so than after his sin with Bathsheba. He'd ordered a census because of his pride. Now he realized he was no greater than the poor farmer whose land he'd purchased. He had finally seen that true worship was costly, just as disobedience had been costly. A week after David's confession and offering, a messenger arrived in the palace with word that 70,000 men had perished throughout Israel. He used the military term fallen, as if they had died in battle. Indeed they had, for God himself had fought against his people. David had originally thought to encourage himself by knowing the strength of his army. Instead, the Lord reduced that number, teaching him that the battle was the Lord's. Moriah's sister's husband was among the dead. Even as Benaiah traveled with his wife to Kabzeel to comfort her sister in her loss, he thanked the Lord for sparing all of his other loved ones. He even thanked God for sparing Jair, his soon-to-be son. Keep listening for chapter 35.